Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, good. Thank you, Chuck. Um, any questions this evening uh, before we get with any questions that I may have for you? No questions before we get to questions? No questions from you before I get to questions for you. Okay, nothing being heard then. Uh, this late addition to our list this, uh, this evening. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart so many times? Thank you for the Sunday school answers. Because he wanted the nations around to recognize how determined he was to care for the nation of Israel, that they were his people, and that he was mightier than any of the Egyptian gods, quote-unquote gods. Yeah, you're, you're partially correct. Exodus 4.21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that uh, you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Seems counterintuitive, right? So that he won't let the people go. Then in Exodus 9.12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So that's just two of the, of the multiple times that we see that uh, the Lord hardened his heart. So why did he do that? Passover could not have happened one of the major feasts without the hardening of his heart. Yeah, and why was Passover so important in the in the scheme of the ten plagues? Because it showed God's redemptive plan. Yes, but more. Because it was Back. I don't know how you say it, for the fact that Pharaoh had tried to kill the ten the babies of the Israelites, and so yes, their babies were killed. Yes, but more. The, the side uh, remark. I went to the Ramses exhibit in Sydney, and they told me worldly said that they believe Ramses II was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. That's it. That. Yep. It's uh, it, it's one of uh, the Exodus is one of the most interesting historical facts that we have. The the non-biblical archaeologist doesn't want to accept it, but as Egyptologists uh, work and work and work and work on this, they have come to more and more evidence that proves there was a a group, a, a large group, millions possibly, of Semites in uh, northern Egypt 
there was a marked decrease in the power of Egypt at a specific specific time. There was a a significant reduction in the wealth of Egypt at the same time, and nothing historically matches up to that except the Exodus. Yeah, the the problem is the the uh, the non-biblical archaeologist, I should say the non-Christian archaeologist have a date that doesn't fit with what the Old Testament says typically. They're off typically by 2 to 500 years and a lot of that has to do with what has been common in the biblical archaeology field for the last hundred years um, there was it's almost an incestuous relationship between the scholars that train the new scholars they all stem from the same group originally and that group led by Dame Catherine Kenyon had put the dates had, had made the dates wrong an error in her calculations of the dates and for a hundred years following her, or whatever, how many ever years it was following her, all of her students and their students that are the archaeologists of today um, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say that that was wrong until finally a couple came out and said, look, we just can't abide by this. We have clear evidence that that dating is wrong by, I forget what the numbers are. And now in the last... 20 or 30 years, we're seeing more and more archaeologists come out and say, yeah, that, those dates are wrong, and biblical authority for those dates is more accurate. And it's interesting to see how that's all been developed. But uh, let's get back on the topic. Thank you, uh, uh, Sybil. So, first of all, Pharaoh's heart was hard already. God didn't make him opposed to the Hebrews. He was already that way. We know that because... We, we read it in Exodus that there, there, there rose a, a Pharaoh who didn't like the, the Hebrews, who didn't know Joseph, didn't know the, the deal with Joseph, and, and subjugated the Hebrews really bad. So we already know that his heart was hard. But, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting this out as a, as a potential. I'm not saying this is why God did it, because I don't think we can answer why. But here's a potential. Perhaps without the Lord's intervention, hardening his heart more, that at some point early in the plagues, Pharaoh would have said, look, I'm done with you Jews, get out of here. Well, but that would... Plague, I'm sorry? When his, isn't it plague six or somewhere there, near there that his advisors say, come on, Pharaoh, this is enough. Egypt is destroyed. Yeah, yeah. And... and and it's it's likely that he would have rejected um, for a while and then finally given in. But God had a purpose in the ten plagues. What do the ten plagues match up to? Yeah, various Egyptian gods. And so each plague is designed to show that Jehovah God is more powerful than the so-called Egyptian gods, including Pharaoh himself. 
Remember, Pharaoh was a god in Egypt, in the Egyptian culture. And so the, the plagues were designed to systematically destroy the ten primary Egyptian gods. They had hundreds, so it didn't destroy them all. But it showed enough that the Jehovah God was, was the real God and these others were not. Now, who would that be for? Would that be for the Egyptians or for the Hebrews? Hebrews because they had lost touch with their with who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was. Yeah, they didn't have a clue. To for anybody to think that they practiced Judaism, first of all, it didn't exist yet, but that they practiced any worship of uh, of Jehovah God in uh, in Egypt, they, they were steeped in the Egyptian Egyptology. They, they they were steeped in in following the gods of of the Nile and so forth, and so God had to demonstrate besides all the other stuff He was doing with them to make them a people group. He had to show them that He was the true legitimate God, and that everything else was sub subordinate to Him. He was sovereign over it all, and so He needed Pharaoh to go through that process. Pharaoh needed to know the truth. And the Egyptians needed to know the truth, but more importantly, the Hebrews needed to know the truth that Jehovah God is the God. Otherwise, why would they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness following him? Poorly following him, by the way. What do you think God's training was for Moses during that time? Because he wasn't practicing that either, most likely. And the decades that would have passed from when he was a young man, if you think how even in today's society once our our kids leave the house they begin leaving the church um you know all those things set aside how do you think god actually worked with moses to bring him around to well moses life can be divided into three uh groups of 40 years 40 years he was in uh, he was egypt he was all about egypt and uh, I can see him talking to Yul Brenner, um, building Ramses. I mean, when I, when I, that's the, that's what I think of first when I think of Moses and the Exodus. Sorry, but that's the way it works. But then, at forty years old, God sends him out on out. And where does he go? He goes to Midian. Who's in Midian? Jethro. And Jethro is a priest of the Lord. Uh, right. So his father-in-law becomes his, his mentor, his trainer, and, and his, his teacher, so that when he, guarding the, the sheep of, of his father-in-law, comes across the burning bush, he's able to accept the, the Shekinah glory talking to him there as the I Am. If he was still in Egyptian mode, he wouldn't get that. That wouldn't work. But Jethro, I think, spent 40 years training him because he's 80 when he goes back to Egypt. If Jethro is a priest of the Most High God, how come he didn't know about circumcision? Because Moses didn't have his, his son circumcised. Because he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't a descendant of Abraham. Well, there, there are a number of people we have in Scripture that are not Jewish, not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
that have an understanding of who the who God is. Uh, Melchizedek, if he was a person, is a good example of that. I don't think he was a person. I think he was Jesus. But if he was a person, he would be a good example. Here he's a priest of the Most High God, but he's not in the Jewish line. The Jewish line is just beginning with Abraham. And, and we have a number of piece, places like that throughout Scripture where people are not part of, the, of, uh, of God's family, wrong words, of, of the Jewish family that still know who God is. How that process happened, I, we can only speculate, you know, were they, were they uh, descendants um, of people that kept the, the line going? I don't know. Did God visit them? Maybe. I don't know. We, we just have no information. So I think God hardened Pharaoh's heart to demonstrate to the Hebrews and to the Egyptians following the exodus um, Egypt uh, following the exodus Egypt was never a power again Pharaoh was an evil sadistic ruler and was viewed as a god everyone needed to see who the one true god was and Pharaoh needed to go through those 10 plagues and he might have been weak enough in his own rejection of god to drop out at 3 4 5 or 6 something like that and so God hardened his heart. He, he, he didn't make him sin. You need to understand that. God didn't make him sin. His heart was already hard. He was already against the Jews. He was already sadistic. He was already evil. God didn't make him do any of that. He did that all on his own. In, in the confines of the sovereignty of God. Does that answer the question? Okay. Good. Go go back and read the section in uh, in early Exodus when uh, yeah, I'm it now. when he uh, flees. Yeah. Okay, let's go on. Read Exodus four ten through twelve. What is the principle of these verses? That's Exodus four ten through twelve. But Moses said to the Lord, "O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or in since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue." Then the Lord said to him, "Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and and teach you what you shall speak." What's the principle here? Well, first of all, he was a flat out lie. What, that he was not eloquent? Yes. Why do you say that? Well, look how he spoke to the people, what he, how he wrote, and that eloquent person doesn't do that. Okay, that's good. God could have given him that ability. Yeah. Even though he gave him Aaron to be his, his spokesperson, he still could have given him the ability along the way. Moses was called uh, to rescue the Hebrews in Egypt. However, it appears that Moses really didn't want this mission. He, he wasn't out there saying, hey God, hey send me. He said, hey God, don't send me. I don't want to go. I don't want this not this is not my mission. I escaped from there. I don't want to do that. 
It's like the song, you know, we sang as kids. Lord, please don't send me to Africa or wherever it was. Mm -hmm. Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <civil. laughs> Moses offered God excuse after excuse. You know, he he Moses was. I think Sybil is probably correct that that uh, he he was not telling God the truth. Like like somehow at eighty years old, you think it's wise to lie to God. Um, he, he's offering me excuse after excuse, but probably not legitimate excuses, right? One of those excuses that Moses claimed, um, he wasn't an eloquent speaker. And I just, I get this mental picture of this conversation between God and, and Moses. I know that these are not face-to-face -face conversations like two humans speaking, but my mind wants to play it out this way. And, um, uh, he says, "Look, God, I, 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 I don't speak well." well. And uh, God kind of flicks him on the end of the nose and goes, "Hey, who made your mouth, dude? Who who makes you deaf or seeing or blind? Who does that?" And I think God was just standing there with this. This, in my mind's view of this, was standing there with this look of uh, just who do you think you are and who do you think I am? I made your mouth, dipstick. I can make it work when I want it to. I, that's, the, that's the picture of, of the way that plays out in, in my mind. I, I don't mean to be sacrilegious here, but um, I think God was illustrating to Moses that yeah, right. Right. He, but that's an, that's another part of the principle that we see here, right? So so Moses is making all of these excuses that are baseless and aren't legitimate. And God says Which it makes them non not legitimate excuses. You 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 stand. You do not ever stand before God with an excuse to not do what He told you to do. There's not. There's never a legitimate excuse to not do what God told you to do. Yeah, yeah. That that civil that, that response is exactly why this plays out in my mind with with God kind of standing there with this with this look on His face, like just who do you think you are? I'm the guy that made your mouth. I can make it move or not move. So get on your horse. Get down there and do what I told you to do. Tell you, Say what I tell you to say. And everything will be fine. That's, that's the message God is giving to him. The next thing that God said is really important. Therefore, now therefore go and I will, be, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. This is God saying to Moses, listen, don't be creative. Just be obedient. Don't think of ways to be eloquent in this. Just do what I tell you to do. Be creative in other ways, but not with what I tell you to do. Don't make excuses. Just go, and I'll tell you what to say. So let me, let me give you a principle from this passage by quoting 
the right Reverend Dr. Randy Smith. I knew this was coming. I was trying to get that in. But okay, how, go ahead, Ann. God uses the improbable to do the impossible. Is that the one you were thinking? No, that's not the one. That's not the one. Oh. God's, yep. God's done God's way will not lack for God's supply. Right. God's business done God's way will not lack God's supply. So God has a plan for Moses to follow. And he tells Moses to, to just be obedient and do it. I'll, I'll give you what you need. So don't worry about it. If God tells you to do something, he's got the power and the ability to make it work out for you. Yeah, Uncle Bernie used to say, if God tells you to do it, he'll equip you. Right. That's why there's never a legitimate excuse. But, 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 but God, that doesn't work. The principle is that God will provide what you need to do the mission he has given you the way he wants you to do it. Now, quite often, we're willing to do the mission on our time and our way. But that's not the way God wants it. He wants it his way at his time. We need to trust God to provide everything we need to accomplish the mission he's given us the way he wants us to do it. Not the way we want to do it, the way he wants us to do it. I think that's the principle here. Any question or comment on that one? I tried. I was in Moses' place. I tried. Let me tell you. It didn't end up well, and I ended up in America. Anyhow. I flat out told God I would not go to America. No way, no how, no shame. <laughs> it did not end well, let me tell you. In the end, it ended well. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it ended pretty well. You're in a pretty good place now, right? Absolutely, but that many years ago, I was not willing to come to America. Yep, I understand. And give up our lifestyle. Absolutely not. But... He was much more gracious to, to Moses than he was to me, let me tell you. I don't know. I think God flicking me on the end of the nose to get my attention would be uh, not so gracious. Okay, let's... let killing Moses. God almost killing Moses on the way. Yeah. terribly gracious. Yeah. Okay, read Exodus 18, 13 through, th uh, through 27. Why is this passage important? Exodus 18, 13 through 27. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? All of the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person or another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. 
Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them uh, know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, of fifties, uh, and of tens. And let them judge the people all at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it shall be easier for you, and you will bear, uh, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. In the hard cases, they brought to Moses. But any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So what? why is this passage, this pericope, so important? It's the basis of our constitution. Not just ours. Democracy. Well, we're not a democracy, but... Democracy. Say that again. Say that again, Anne. It's not, that's not a democracy. It's a representative republic. Correct. We are. Right. Yeah. That's right. On purpose, that's why they're wrong. Um, where, where else, where else do we see this form of uh, leadership? Church. Okay. In our in our own government. Right. In England. Yeah, England. You guys are missing the whole point. This is this is the mode of government that eventually um, all of Israel operated. So he, uh, they they appoint leaders, and those leaders uh, handle the the smaller issues, the tribal issues, the clan issues, and so forth. And Israel, even to the time of her demise in seventy A.D., still had a council, uh, a ruling council of uh, of seventy plus one, uh, the Sanhedrin. Um, all throughout the united and the divided monarchy, they had elders and leaders that that ruled over smaller groups. Um, during the period of the judges, you have this leadership. This became the model of leadership for Israel, for a number of other republic-style governments in history, including our own. It is a model that demonstrates what we used to call at the sheriff's office span of control. There's no way that Moses could handle all that many people. And so the group, the, the amount of people that have access needs to be narrowed. And that's why it was in tens, fifties, hundreds, and, and thousands. Because the guy with the that's ruler over tens, he can handle that. That's basically the the extent of a span of control of one person is ten people. For a new person, a new leader, it's typically five to seven. But an experienced leader can handle ten. And so there was somebody then that was in charge of ten 
groups of 10, and so on. And that's how that built. And that, that is a, a model that is used in, in I, would, I would surmise, uh, every military in the world, probably every military in the world since then. It's a model that has efficiencies built into it. It's a model that provides good supervision without the guy at the top needing to know everything and do everything. And so this, this passage becomes important because it sets the groundwork for how Israel operated and how a bunch of, uh, of republics around the, the world since have operated. It demonstrates what God's heart is in how leadership should be done. I think beyond that, though, it also goes to the point that we're not designed to be one-man band. Right. Um, and I think that's what Jethro was trying to tell him. You aren't designed to do this. You're going to you know, wear yourself out. It's too much for you. You know, you need somebody to come alongside and help you pick up the pieces here. Right. And, and that's, that's a hard thing for new leaders to understand. That they have an effective span of control that's really limited. And when they try to control more than that, they, they run into problems and they cause themselves more, more work and more problems. When you learn how to delegate to your, to your lower leaders, then you can make an effective team. But if you try to run everything yourself, it doesn't work. You're saying micromanagement is a no-no. Well, even, you, without even micromanagement. If, if I, as a supervisor at the sheriff's office, would try to... to, to I, I, when my last uh, billet at the sheriff's office, I had three and a half divisions of, of people. Some of them, one, one of the divisions had, uh, had 95 people in it. Another division had 75 people in it. But I couldn't do the day-to-day -day operation of all those things. I had a lieutenant for each one of those divisions that did the day-to-day. -day. I did the, the, the overarching stuff. I didn't get involved in the in the day-to-day -day stuff. And, and that's exactly what this principle is here. There, there has to be a chain of, of command and a, a, a it, it, it is an illustration, of, as Linda said, of how easy it is for our ego to get in the way and make things worse for everybody. And we can't do that. You know, when, when I, one of the times I was teaching in Haiti, one of the things I had to teach was uh, uh, leadership training from the Apostle Paul. What, what did Paul do? Did he surround himself with hundreds of people? No, he surrounded himself with a small team. And then he dispersed that team to go out. What did Jesus do? He had, he had, same thing, yeah, he had thousands of followers, but he had a team of real close to him, three, and then behind them, uh, what's uh, seven more? Nine more. Nine more. Nine more. I knew that. I knew the math wasn't right, but I couldn't get it quick enough. Yeah, nine more. So, right. So I I would argue that probably the inner three had a supervisory role over the others because that's proper span of control. And if Jesus had to do that, and I use that in a in a strictly humanistic uh, statement. 
in his sovereignty, obviously he doesn't need to have that span of control. But Jesus in his ministry was teaching his disciples how to do those things. And so he demonstrated very well, here's a span of control uh, of my inner circle of three, those three, then the nine, and those nine. And it replicates very quickly out. Yeah, because at one point he sent out 70. Right. But that explains why the, why the apostles said he can't do all this and, they, and told him to elect... Uh, uh, because. Right, exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> you can't do everything. So in a, in a large church where thousands of people go, does the pastor pastor them all? No. The pastor is primarily, in most instances, is pastor of the pastors. And the pastors then have a group that they lead, and they lead smaller groups that lead other groups. It's the only way it works. And that's what Jethro is, uh, or what, uh, why this passage is important. Now, there are several criteria in this that we need to look at. First of all, you got to look for able men from, whom, uh, from all the people. So there's some criteria, excuse me, criteria for the men. What makes them able? They are men who fear God. They are men who are trustworthy. I love this one. They are men who hate a bribe. See, if we use that criteria for our politicians, we wouldn't have any politicians. But... The criteria that he's given here sounds an awful lot like the criteria that we would see later for deacons and elders. Mm -hmm. So God is establishing a, 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 a pattern of how to lead through the, through the words of Moses' father-in-law. And Moses sets it up and it works very well. And it becomes the pattern that, that Israel uses and it becomes the pattern that every military uses. It becomes the pattern that many countries have used. It is a pattern that follows God's direction, whether the military wants to admit it or not. Questions or comments on that one? No. Uh, go ahead, Steve. I just, you were talking about the military. Well, there was military before they gave that command. Yeah, I, th I, I don't think this was, was unique to Jethro. And uh, I suspect that this was an education for Moses on purpose because Moses may have had a big head at this point. I know we're not supposed to think that way because he's one of the great leaders of, of Israel and so forth. You know, he was a great guy, but I think he had a big head. You know, first he rejected God's call. But then when God sent him there and he, and he started doing this, he, I'm the only one that can answer these questions. I'm the only guy that can do it. And Jethro had to set him straight. No, you're not the only guy. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt the people. Because you don't have it all together. So it wasn't unique to Jethro. I suspect that, uh, that Pharaoh had, uh, had uh, control of the military and that control... Just naturally, you understand you can't run it all, and you need people. You need uh, you need layers of leadership. I think that's just natural. But Moses rejected it, and why he rejected it, I think, was his pride. I can't prove that from scripture, 
but I don't know how I don't know how a normal human wouldn't be prideful in that situation. I have a question. At the very end of the passage, you read um, Jethro goes home. Did, did Zipporah and his two sons stay, or did they go home with Jethro? I just read that. Um, didn't, didn't Jethro bring when he went to Moses? Didn't he bring the wife and kids? Right. Yeah, when Jethro went home, did the wife and kids go home with Jethro, or did they stay with Moses? I couldn't figure it out. I, I think they stayed for a time. Right. Least, whether they went back later on or not, we're not told, but I think they stayed at least for a time. I, I, well, I can't remember where, but I seem to recall that Moses' wife and kids stayed with him through much of the wilderness wandering. See, we're early in the in the in the four uh, in the forty years here. I don't I don't remember. Yeah. He does that before he goes to to Egypt. He circumcises the boys. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to read on it. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. Zephora circumcised him. Right. Right. Wasn't Moses? But I thought we finished. Gonna get God was going to kill him if he because he hadn't. I wonder how Sephora knew that. Um, that yeah. I'll have to read on that. I don't. I don't remember. I can't remember off the top of my head. Right now. Any other questions or comments? Okay, read Exodus um, 20, 1 through 17. Explain the arrangement of the commandments. I'm, I'm going to just cut to the chase, and uh, you, know, you know the commandments. You know what they are. Four up, six across. Yeah, and, and what's that mean? Yeah. God is God is really working to train his people that didn't have the same understanding and needed to uh, to begin the process of building them as a people group. And so the commandment the 10 commandments become the basis for the 603 other um, commands in the Old Testament. Um, on how they're to live, how they're to live with God and worship God and, and trust God and, and obey God and how they're to live with each other. Um, what's interesting is, they, as Mary said, four up, uh, six across, uh, forming the picture of a cross. And then Jesus comes and becomes the fulfillment of the law, not the abrogator of the law, but the fulfillment of the law, that shows people how to properly do the four up, six across. I know we've talked about the Ten Commandments in the past, so let's uh, let me just bypass the reading of that and go on to the to the next question. Maybe. 
Read Exodus 23, 20 and 21. Who or what is the angel? <laughs> Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your name or pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Who or what is the angel? Theophany. I mean, a Christophany. A Christophany. So it would be the angel of the Lord. angel of the Lord. I'm surprised how many people want this to be Moses. Really? Yeah. That makes no sense. Well, it does make sense if you don't read critically, because behold, I'll send an angel. What's what? What does the word? What is the Hebrew word angel? Or the the Hebrew for the yeah it's the uh, it's the Hebrew word malch get the guttural in there and it means it means spiritual being that we call an angel or messenger and so you have to really look at the context to see how malch is used so let's look at the verses and see in verse twenty God says He'll send an angel or a messenger to guard them on the way and bring them to a place He's prepared. Could Moses be the messenger and leader? Yeah, he could be. He could be the messenger or the angel because God sent him to lead the people and to teach the people. He gave to Moses the law. So if you only read verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 20, Moses could absolutely be that guy. And so the proper uh, translation of Malach would be, uh, would be messenger. But go on to verse 21. In verse 21, God warns the Hebrews to pay careful attention to him. Still could be Moses, referring to the messenger or angel, for what? He will not pardon you, for my name is in him. Did Moses ever have the right to pardon or not pardon? No. So now no longer is it in the realm of potential um, human messenger. It has to be something... Someone who has the ability to pardon. Who who's the only one that has the ability to pardon? Jesus. Yeah, only God, right? So, but then verse twenty-two, I think, is the nail in the coffin. I think it's the clincher. If you carefully obey His voice and do all I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. What do you think? Is that Moses? No, I don't think so gives us an idea that the angel messenger has to be the angel of the Lord, has to be, as Linda said, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But I was surprised at how many wanted this to be Moses. But didn't they already have, they already had Moses at that point? Right, but God could be telling them, I've got, you know, he's the guy I've sent. He's the messenger I want you to lead. <coughs> I'm sorry to follow so that becomes difficult I think to see it as anybody other than the angel of the Lord anybody other than uh, uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus so now think about that for a minute the pre-incarnate Jesus is sent to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt to Sinai to get the law 
to eventually make it to the promised land, to take the promised land, although they didn't take it all, and build a society in which he would be physically born in to be executed in. That's what that's what this passage is telling us. Isn't it a shame that the Israelites don't understand? They will. They will, but not till the not till the tribulation. But is it not sad that they do not understand and see the incredible love that God has for them? Yep. Okay. Our our final question. Um, today is uh, read Psalm 19 and uh, what is the message and the theme of the psalm to the choir master a psalm of David the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom living, uh, leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward who can discern his errors de uh, declare me innocent from hidden faults keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin let them not have a dominion over me then i shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight o lord my rock and my redeemer i love that we are doing a psalm a day and when when we get when in the reading every morning when it comes to this i try to pray this pray with it through it but psalm 19 is directed to the choir master which tells us that it was put to music and it was sung by the israelites don't you remember singing it oh yeah yeah i, I i've sung that song for 50 years but exactly. i don't know how they sung it but I have a treat for you tonight. I have this psalm in Hebrew with subtitles. So may, maybe it will be cool. Wait, I didn't get... There we go. Sapirim 
בלי נשמע עולם בכל הארץ יסא קוואם ובקצה תבל מלהם לשמש שם אוהל בהם ורוק החתן יוצא מחופתו יסיס כריבור לרוס אורח מקצה השמיים מוסאו It's hard to listen to, and ju- I just wonder what it would, that, that wasn't the whole thing. I hope you could hear it. Um, it's, it's intriguing to me. It's haunting to me. And I, I, I just really wonder, what did it sound like to the Jews? When, when they were doing this, what did it sound like? Yeah, he, he sing yeah. Yeah, but he sings it in the modern cadence of the, the modern Jews. And I just wonder what it sounded like to the, to the Israelites. You know, it was directed to the choir master. So this was a, this was a national song that was sung. And, and so I just, it was worshipful. And it was intended to be worship. And so my challenge to you is, as we go through every day a new psalm, and we'll go through the Psalms twice over the course of the year. Um, let them be worship, if you at all can, read through the Psalm and worship with it. This one is one that everybody was singing uh, sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. That, was, that tune was going through everybody's mind, just because we've all done it for years. But my curiosity, I want to know what it sounded like to the Israelites. Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.